All right. Are you ready for Daniel chapter 9? That's where I'm turning this morning. Daniel chapter 9. And as I do that, I'm just going to pray. Lord, the most important thing that I want this morning, as we have sung, as we have sought you, is that your name would be lifted higher. That you would be exalted as we look together at this precious promise and word from God that you gave to your servant Daniel. And today you've given it to us. You've brought it on this occasion, on this particular day, for us to hear. Meaning, there's something in here that we need to grab hold of, personally, and as a church. So we pray towards that end, that you may be glorified in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to pick up with verse 24. We were in this portion last week, and we're going to go back over it and finish it today. Daniel chapter 9, beginning with verse 24. Gabriel is speaking, and he says to Daniel, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Do you like corn mazes? I do. I think they're pretty fun. Once a year in the fall, I like to go out with the family. and Well, our kids are, my daughter's a little too young for it, but uh, it's a fun thing to do, you know. But I like them even better when I go in with a map. Right? Because what I don't enjoy is wandering around for hours on end, coming back again to the same place and wondering when in the world I'm going to get out of here. Right? Without a map, you're bound to make one too many left turns and, um, well, wind up at the same place you were an hour ago. But you know what's even better than having a map? It's when the maze itself and the map provide us with some signposts. You know what I mean? Like, you reach a certain spot and maybe you find a a scarecrow there or some object and you go, oh, 
Here's the scarecrow on the map. I know where we are, right? So you get your bearings again. When it comes to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, I don't want you to go in without your map. Okay? Because it's entirely probable that without a guide, you will be meandering in this text endlessly without ever a clear indication if, if you've ever reached the end. Okay? Without a map, you're going to wander aimlessly. And that's not God's intention. It's not His intention. And you know what? He has not only given you a map, but He's also identified the beginning and the end. And isn't that great? So you don't have to wander in here wondering, where is this going to end up? You know where it's going to go. It tells you, right? It tells you this is where we're headed. Remember last week I mentioned the goal? There's a goal in this text. Don't lose sight of the goal, right? Look at your map, verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to do what? Six things. I'll put them up here, right? To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. And three more. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Okay. So what's the big idea? There's a big idea here, right? It's this. God will accomplish His redemption plan. That's really what those six things are summing up. God's redemptive goal. So, now if we go back and just put ourselves in Daniel's shoes for a minute, okay? here's what Daniel had his, his eyes on. It was what was directly in front of him. And what was that? Well, those 70 years of exile were, were done. That's what's his, his mind. These years should be finished. Our exile should be wrapping up. And that's as much as he could see at the moment. Okay, And what he anticipated then was that God's city would be restored, God's sanctuary would be rebuilt, and God's people would be returned. Okay, So he looked, in a way you could put it this way, for a second exodus to the back to the promised land. Remember how the people left Egypt and there was a mass exodus back to the promised land? Well, Daniel said, I'm waiting for that again when God brings us back out of this place to the land that he promised us. Okay. Well, that much was going to happen. As you'll see in a moment, God will clarify. But God so loves Daniel that he says to him, you know what, Daniel? I got something much bigger to show you. Okay. I want you to look past those 70 years because I'm about to do something. I'm going to do it in 70 sevens. Or what your text says there, 70 weeks. Okay. Now the point here is not the exactness of that many years, which adds up to 490, but what they signify. Do you remember this? Well, according to Leviticus, okay, if 49 years leads to a jubilee year, that 50th year, then 490 years leads to a tenfold jubilee year. Okay, meaning this. And that was a year when captives were released. Okay, so if an Israelite was in bondage to another Israelite, at that year they were set free. They could go back to their land. Property was returned. Okay, God saying, I got a tenfold jubilee in store for you. And I got something really big. You know what it is? I'm going to break 
the bonds of sin. And I'm going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Okay, What God envisioned was not just an immediate release from political captivity under Babylonians or Persians or whoever, but an ultimate jubilee, right, from spiritual slavery. And this, by the way, would come by the establishment of a new covenant. Okay, I want you to keep that in mind. It's going to come by a new covenant. You with me so far? Okay. Well, as it is, you know, you and I are not unlike Daniel. Because it's not wrong of him to look for the promise of the, that was at hand. That, that, you know, these 70 years are up, right? God, when's this going to happen? When are we going back? And so we pray, it's for your name's sake. Because God, you foretold these things. When are you going to finish them? Hey, nothing wrong with desiring those short-term things. But it would have been wrong if Daniel, now knowing the big picture of what God is going to do, if he just staked all his joy and all his peace on whether or not that short-term thing was completed. Now, I think one indication that Daniel said, you know what, I'm going to grab hold of God's bigger, eternal revelation is this fact. You know what happened? He never went back to the promised land. Because next week we're going to jump into chapter 10, and that chapter starts off in the third year of Cyrus, which means after the decree to go back has happened. right? It's already been made. And where's Daniel? He's still in Babylon. Well, I say, well, maybe he was too old to go. Well, Moses was pretty old too, but he was his heart was set on the promised land. And wasn't Caleb like 80 years old when he jumped in, took the land? Now, I don't think it was he was too old. I think this is true, that the short-term things became less important when the things of eternity gets a hold of your heart. That's why it says that the fathers, you know, remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they dwelt in tents in the promised land. You say, hey, you're in the land. Why don't you build yourself a house? Why don't you settle down? The scripture says, well, they were looking for a city with foundations whose designer and builder is God. And of these people, it says this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and have acknowledged, acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles, look at, on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, that reminds me of Daniel, they would have had opportunity to return, just like he did. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see, it didn't matter if Daniel was in Babylon or if he was in Jerusalem. He was a stranger in exile, no matter where he was on earth. But his mind was set on a better country, a heavenly one. Hey, what would such a perspective do for you? How would it change your view of what you're facing, what you're struggling and suffering with right now? I think it would lead us to this, at least, that, you know what, I can let go, I can release the grievances and the sins that have been committed against me that I've been holding on to. Don't matter in the end. Not in the big picture. 
And I can let go of having to be physically healed for real peace. Because God is my peace, isn't He? And I can let go of being far from my comfort zone and the people I'm most you know, at ease with. I can let go of fearing the future. God is my future. I'm His child. I can let go of needing people, right? I've got to have this group of people around me or these things around me. Or maybe you're thinking, I need these people out of my life. No. I can let go of that too. Get a view to the homeland and you'll know what really matters at the end of the day. So, the big idea is God's redemptive goal, right? Focus on this, not the earthly things that won't matter in the end, like Dave is doing, like others are doing. Okay, so you have the goal, you know it, God's redemptive plan. Next comes okay, the process. God revealed to Daniel some things that now must take place between his own time and the completion of those 77s. Okay? And this is where we as modern readers can get a bit lost and sidetracked. Okay? Now, but bear in mind, you already know where the goal is. You know where this is going. Okay? God's redemptive plan. And along the way, here's the good thing. We're going to identify some signposts okay, to get our bearings and to keep our bearings so we don't go in circles and never get anywhere. You understand? Okay. These will make sense as we go along. I'm going to call these interpretive signposts. And here's the first one. Okay. Number one. The time periods appear consecutive. Okay. What God reveals is that there will be three time periods, right? Between or till these purposes in verse 24 are complete. Look at verse 25, right? Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be... Seven weeks. There's your first one. Then for 62 weeks, here's your second period, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Okay? So, this verse then, you've got the seven weeks and you've got the 62 weeks. What's that add up to? 69 weeks, right? You do the math. Okay. Now, look at what verse 26 says. You following with me here? Verse 26 says, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. Okay? When would that be, after the 62 weeks? Well, the most natural understanding would be the 70th week, right? Because what comes after 69? 70. Okay? In other words, there's nothing in this text that gives me any indication of a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. I don't see it here. Okay. It would appear that the anointed one, whom we know to be Jesus the Messiah, is cut off in the 70th week. Okay. And then we read this, right? The last part of verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. 
desolations are decreed. Okay. That leads me into the second signpost here, okay? Number one, time periods appear consecutive. Number two, the subjects and their actions, okay? The major difficulty in this text is knowing who is being talked about. Because very similar titles are used, right? Such as the word prince. Did you see that? The prince, the anointed one who is to come, and that's a reference to Messiah. But then you come to verse 26, what we just read, and it says, and the people of the prince who is to come. Well, is that the same guy? Is that the same prince? That's the question I asked you with last week. Or is this a different ruler? Well, I believe it's a different figure, and here's why. Hey, the Messiah has just been cut off at this point, right? It means he's been put to death. Why then would the people of the Messiah destroy their own city and sanctuary? That doesn't make much sense to me. Because this must be a foreign invader, and this fits with the pattern of Daniel. Remember, it happened first with Nebuchadnezzar, came in, sacked Jerusalem. Happens again with Antiochus IV, many years later, and that won't be the last time it happens. But don't overlook this connection here, right? Messiah will be cut off, city will be destroyed. Now, are those two related? I think so. I think the reason that the city is destroyed in the sanctuary is because the city on a whole rejected and killed its Messiah. This is, in fact, the judgment predicted by Jesus, who we know to be the Messiah, against Jerusalem and the temple. So let's do a little study here. Turn in your Bibles to, chapter, to the book of Luke, chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, if you find verse 41. Okay, you there? It says this, And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Do you see it? Do you see the connection here? Because you've rejected Me, this judgment will come. Folks, Jesus was no liar. Okay, And the things that he spoke of took place in 70 A.D. The Romans, led by Titus, you've heard of them? Surrounded Jerusalem. Okay, They laid siege to it for two years. Okay, Josephus took a picture for us. No, it's a little rendition of it, right? But he did say this about it, the historian Josephus. He said, and when they, speaking of the Roman soldiers, were come to the houses to plunder them, when they broke in, they found in in people's houses, okay, they found in them entire families of dead men and the upper rooms full of dead corpses. That is, of such as died by the famine. That's what happens when you're 
under siege for two years. There's corpses in your house. They then stood in a horror at this sight and went out without touching anything. But although they had this commiseration for such as were destroyed in that manner, yet they had not the same for those that were still alive. But they ran everyone through whom they met with and obstructed the very lanes with their dead bodies and made the whole city run down with blood to such a degree, indeed, that the fire of many of the houses was quenched with these men's blood. So after the Romans broke through and commenced with the slaughter of those who were still alive, they desecrated the temple, right? This is on the Arch of Titus, and you can see them carrying off the furniture of the temple. Titus, of course, went into the Holy of Clolies, therefore desolating it. He desecrated the temple. But important to our understanding is not only that Jesus foretold this destruction of city and sanctuary, but he also connected it with Daniel's prophecy. Did you know that? Okay, you're still in Luke, right? I want to show you two things. Look at page over to chapter 21, okay? Luke 21, verse 20. So here's Jesus' instructions. You get this? He said this, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, this same instruction from Jesus is found in both Matthew and Mark. I'm not going to have you turn there, but I'm going to pull one, pas- one passage up because you're going to see the connection to Daniel. Okay? See this? So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Did you see that? Same thing in Luke, right? When you see this happen, when Jerusalem is surrounded, flee to the mountains. Okay? When the abomination that causes desolation, that's just a phrase that means when that blasphemous Gentile stands where he ought not to in the Holy of Holies, an event foretold by Daniel that Matthew says, hey, you need to understand this. Let the reader understand Think about it, okay, folks? When was the Gospel of Matthew written? Probably about 50 to 60 A.D., while Jerusalem was still standing. Hadn't happened yet. Therefore, for the first readers of Matthew, you come to this part of the Scripture, most of them would be Christians living in and around Jerusalem. And that's a very direct message for them, isn't it? Hey, when you see these things, get out, Jesus is saying. And history records... That when the armies of Rome approached the city, you know what happened with the Christians? They packed their bags, spared their lives, and got out of there. 
In fact, they moved to a town called Pella. You can look it up. It's known in history as the Flight to Pella, one of the cities of the Decapolis. So what happened here? Jesus protected the early church in these infant years by these instructions. And it related to the desolation that Daniel spoke of, right? So the 70th week, we're going back, sees the Messiah cut off. And because of this, what follows is judgment on Jerusalem. Now, back to Daniel. Okay. We're in verse 27. You with me? Now it says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now what we're challenged with, again, is knowing, well, who is this talking about? Who's the he that makes this strong covenant? Now when I grew up understanding was that the he was the same prince who destroyed the city. Now, mind you, whom Jesus connected with the Romans and Titus, but this is the he whom people say is the yet future Antichrist. Have you heard that before? Right. And what the Antichrist would do would make an agreement, a strong covenant with the Jews. He would reinstate their temple worship only to then break that agreement halfway through that week or seven-year period. Three and a half years and he's going to break that covenant. Okay, But this view would require that between that 69th week and the 70th week, there's a big gap. In fact, we're still in that gap today because the Antichrist hasn't come yet. But what I tell you, it doesn't appear to be that way. The 70th week seems to follow the 69th week, right? Okay. So here's, that's my contention. Remember the signposts. There's no reason the week should be taken other than consecutively, one after the other. And the Messiah appears to be cut off when? Well, it seems to be the 70th week. That's a normal reading. Now, verse 27 takes us back into that 70th week, right? And he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week, that last week, that last seven. So if the sequence is normal, and it's the same period that Christ is cut off, well, let's add this then. Our second signpost was what? The subject and their actions. We'll know their subject by their actions. But what action is happening here? What's he doing? He's making a strong covenant. Okay, and this is where we need to pause for a minute and we need to get some understanding in the original languages. Okay, Because when you get into the Hebrew and you learn what is really written here, some of these verbs, here's what you find. Okay, The verb here actually means to make firm a covenant. To make firm a covenant. Not to create a covenant out of thin air. Okay, so I do not think that the subject here is the Antichrist at all. And that's not to deny that he will make a future appearance. I just don't see it here in this text. Because it's not talking about making a covenant, only ratifying one that's already existing. Now listen here, folks, then. Listen. There was a covenant in existence. 
It's called a new covenant. Made by God and during the exile. Remember Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36? Okay. But it had not yet come to pass yet, had it? Well, when was it ratified? Okay. When were the conditions of that covenant met? When was it finally inaugurated and brought to pass? Well, do you remember what Hebrews says? Where there is a will involved, it requires the death of the one who made it. The covenant is not ratified until it's ratified with blood. For it goes on to say, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so on the night before he died, Jesus took a cup and he said this, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for... For who? For many. For the forgiveness of sins. Did you catch that? Which is poured out for many. Well, go back to Daniel for a minute. The covenant confirmed in Daniel was with who? He will confirm a covenant with many. Isaiah 53.11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Matthew 20.28, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Therefore, in humility I propose, this is not a reference to the Antichrist and him making some kind of treaty with the Jews, but is rather a reference to the Messiah that tells us in more detail what his cutting off will accomplish. In other words, you could say this, verse 27 repeats verse 26, but with a little more detail. So, put it this way then. The 70th week is divided thus. For half the week, the first half, the work of redemption is accomplished. He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Jesus' death brought an end to the sacrificial system. It's no longer necessary, right? He put it to rest. It's done. The second half of the week witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem that follow, right? And on, verse 27 finishes, And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Again, this echoes what was said in 26, right? The city and sanctuary will be destroyed. Desolations are decreed. Same thing here, only, added, only it adds this, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Those whom God uses to judge His people, He also judges themselves. Think of Belshazzar. Right? Blaspheme God. Taken out. Antiochus IV, taken out. Titus, removed. Antichrist to come. Hey, the desolator will be taken out. You follow me? Okay. Now maybe you're thinking, Pastor Josh, where does this interpret what does this interpretation mean for your eschatology? I mean, if the 70th week is not future to us, but has already happened, I don't know. I haven't gotten that far yet. Because that's not really my main concern, is it? My main concern, what's most important, is that I have to exegete what's in front of me. And that highlights a rather important point that I want you to take hold of, okay? 
You don't let your theology shape your conclusions of the text. You allow your conclusions about the text shape your theology. Do you understand? You start with the text. That's your first allegiance, not a school of theology. And that means sometimes it means willing to go where the text seems to lead you. Now, in this case, it most convincingly leads me to see that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is the fulfillment to Daniel 9, along with the destruction that followed. And it may very well be that the second half of the 70th week spans the present age of the church. For there are many, even today, who must hear his voice and come to his care. So I'll say this in conclusion. Okay. I'll wrap this up here a little bit. The new exodus, okay, which is true restoration as a son or a daughter of God, came with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is my tenfold jubilee. Okay. He atones my sin. He brings to me in everlasting righteousness. I said as much last week when we pointed all those purposes back to Him, right? When He came in Luke 4, He said, and He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives. Hey, every human being is born in sin and will sin in the course of their life and therefore you are in that bondage. You're a slave to sin. So, have you asked Jesus to set you free? He will. Today, if you ask Him to. So I want you to pray. You pray yourself or you grab someone. I give you permission. You can grab someone here and say, hey, would you pray with me? And you pray something like this. Thank you for being cut off for me and making the forgiveness of my sins possible through the shedding of your blood. My sins have devastated me. And I, through my own sin, have devastated the people around me. And so I ask you to cleanse me and make me new. Thank you for the new covenant, that promise to forgive my sin. Now I trust you, for there is no one else who is worthy, least of all, myself. And if that's your heart, then rest and live by the love that He has given you. Man, what a view that Daniel had from afar, right? But you and I, we don't stand back from where Daniel was at. I don't know how many years it was till Christ would come, but we're here now, right? Christ has come near to us and He said, I'm going to make my home with you. So what does Jubilee sound like? Well, I think it sounds a lot like singing, okay? Singing is what truly joy-filled people do. And maybe you walked in church saying, man... I don't feel like singing today. I've been there. But I'm going to ask you to sing anyway. I'm going to ask you to sing for yourself. And you know what else I'm going to ask you to sing? I'm going to ask you to sing for the person sitting next to you. Did you know the Bible says to sing for others? Sometimes you've got to sing for somebody else who needs to hear you sing. Otherwise, I wouldn't hear those words in Christ alone. Because it says, address one another, address one another in spiritual songs. 
So it's not that we need a filler here at the end. Well, let's just pick a song and close that way. No, singing is a ministry to one another, to uplift each other, to look to Jesus Christ and put your confidence in Him, whatever it is that you face. So would you sing in such a way that those hearing would say, you know what, if that person can have courage with what they're dealing with, I can sing too. All right. Let's pray for the meal that we're about to share. Lord, thank you for the fellowship that we have because we're all all in Jesus Christ. Therefore, God is my Father, and these brothers and these sisters are mine brothers and sisters. And so it's good to be together. And we need times of fellowship, and we need times as a church to think about where we have been and where we are going. And such is the occasion for meetings such as we're having. So, Lord, we pray that you would lead us and guide us, and in the process, our faith would be built up, our love would be extended, and we would grab hold of the eternal things as a church. In Jesus' name. Amen.